You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's episode is on a mass conversion of Israel? For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Israel is a mesmerizing, magical, magnificent place to visit. Uh, The foods, the sounds of Hebrew, Arabic, Russian, and other tongues, the stark topography of the land, the history, the association with so many places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Wouldn't it be wonderful, incredible, if everyone in Israel became a Christian, or just all the Jews in Israel were converted to Christ, surely that would be uh, something that would show God's goodness and bring great rejoicing on the earth. Similarly, if all the French came to the Savior, or if there was a mass revival in Japan and all embraced Jesus as Lord, or if all the Egyptians became Christians, we would rejoice. It's a wonderful thought. It's a great dream. Yet it is the actual teaching and doctrine of a large number of Bible-centered churches. And when I say Bible-centered, I mean where there's an expectation that the members would read the Bible, because most churches aren't like that. So I mean on the more conservative end of the Christian spectrum. Yet I believe that most Bible-centered churches may be off base in this area in reference to the conversion of Israel. Let me read the problematic passage and then tell you where we're going. And of course, it comes from Romans 11. And so we're going to just read part now, part later. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the passage that says explicitly, all Israel will be saved. What are we to make of that? Is it to be taken in the perhaps simplest and and certainly the most literal way? I don't think so. And I'd like to offer eight reasons I think we should doubt that there will be a mass conversion. And then I'll continue and answer eight questions you may have even after you hear this particular uh, perspective, my angle on the conversion of Israel. Now, although it's a different explanation than the common teaching you would hear uh, on the radio or in a conservative church, I ask you, please give it a hearing. Weigh the evidence. And don't judge me too harshly if you think I have misread the scriptures, just as I will strive not to think less of your intelligence, motives, or love for God's word if you have a different view. 
Now, this is a meaty lesson. This podcast, like the majority, comes with notes, which you can read now or you can uh, refer to later. For now, perhaps you just want to listen. So let's begin with eight reasons to doubt an impending mass conversion. Number one, Israel is used in different senses. That is, the definition of Israel is not fixed. We have to actually go back to chapter 9. This unit of scripture, Romans 9 to 11, raises the question, what about physical Israel? 6 to 8 show us uh, the wonder of being in Christ and what that does to our individual lives based on justification by faith, which Paul has worked out in the previous chapters. So it's a natural natural question. Well, what about uh, the God's covenant people? Was the Old Testament a botch? Was it a do-over? Was the Lord experimenting? Not at all, Paul says. It's all good in a way. But in chapter 9, Paul explains, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. The Bible says that we can be sons of Abraham or daughters of Sarah, think of 1 Peter 3, if we have faith in Christ, even if ethnically we're not descended from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through one of the 12 tribes. So Paul defines Israel in quite a different way than Israel defined itself in the first century. Not to say the covenants were unimportant or that the history of uh, of God's people could be uh, neglected. This is a vital part of God's revelation to us. But true Israel are those who are uh, children of promise, of faith. And so you can't just make an ethnic claim. Remember John the Baptist, when the religious leaders came to him and he challenged them, uh, Matthew 3 or Luke 3, uh, challenged them on their pride their excessive uh, confidence in their heritage. John says God could raise up children uh, from Abraham out of these stones. It's not the ethnic thing. It's not what you're born into, but it's a very hard idea to dislodge. So one reason I doubt there's an impending mass conversion is that Israel is the children of faith. It's not all the nation of Israel, ancient or modern. Now, you may say, yes, but if they all come to faith, then, well, of course, if they all came to faith, they would all be children of Abraham. In fact, if all the Chinese came to faith or the Nigerians or the Brazilians, then they would be God's children as well. But that's the first point to make. Then let's look at uh, this idea of the remnant, which Paul introduces um, in this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, may I read a little bit earlier um, in verse 3? And this is the passage about Elijah. Uh, Elijah speaks, 11.3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul is making some kind of a parallel between his day, and this is uh, in the first century. Romans is written in the 50s. It might be 55, 56, 58, something like that. And uh, the time of Elijah, which would have been in the ninth century before Christ. So this is a, a good nine centuries earlier. And here, Elijah was overwhelmed. He felt so lonely, so alone. But God says there is a remnant now, just as there was then. And at that time, there were 7,000. Whether that's a literal number or a figurative number doesn't really matter. But the passage says there were 7,000 men, 7,000 males. And if you take it literally, imagine a nation that's in the hundreds of thousands, uh, maybe in the millions. 7,000 uh, men is not really a huge percentage. On the other hand, uh, if you're just uh, standing amongst them, you and your friend, uh, it does look like a large group. But it's this idea of the remnant, and he talks about that in uh, 10.22, and maybe I should read that one as well, Um, Romans 10.22, most all my scriptures will be from Romans, but not from 10.22, and you know why? Because quite simply, there is no 10.22. And now having done some much-needed Bible research, I've determined why there's no 10.22. It's because chapter 10 only has 21 verses. It's actually back in 9.27. And that's referring to Isaiah 10.22, where we learn that there's a remnant. So you might be tempted to give up on God's people altogether. Paul says, given their history, Paul says there's a remnant. And so that's another reason we don't require a mass conversion because there's a remnant, not an entire nation. Thirdly, in terms of Jewish history, surely it would be unjust to punish every previous generation of Jews, unbelieving Jews, except the one alive at the second coming. Think about this. The uh, common evangelical idea that there'll be a mass revival in the final generation, all Israel will be saved, uh, doesn't include all the previous generations of Israel, uh, majority of whom in the Old Testament are are condemned by the prophets. And if this is the case, then it would become something, a matter of luck. If you happen to be alive in the final generation, then you'd be part of this mass conversion. But that would really make mm, a mockery of the serious words of the prophets, the oracles of doom, the urgency. If everyone was going to be saved anyway, regardless of whether they heeded the voice of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, then it's really not that big a deal. But maybe more important, it would be unjust because every previous generation of Jews uh, would be missing out on this promise except the ones alive at the end, which would be arbitrary. Fourthly, the common view that all Israel means all Israel alive at the second coming uh, will be saved would create an irrelevance in the first century. The question Paul's dealing with is, what about the response of the Jews? If this is true, then why have they rejected Christ? 
Well, you know, they didn't all reject Christ. They did not all reject Christ. Uh, Many followed him. For the gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, uh, back in Romans 1.17. And we see that pattern even in the spread of the gospel, say, in the book of Acts, from synagogue, which is a beachhead, into the community as the church uh, forays more and more into the Gentile world and becomes increasingly Gentile. But if Paul is saying there's really no success in our day, but in a few thousand years, everything will be okay, that would have been of no encouragement to his own people. Yet if he is saying that there is a remnant now in the present, a remnant saved by grace, and we will reach them, we'll reach all of them, then there's a meaning and a hope that are concrete. Once again, if he's speaking only of the so-called end of times, then the passage is pretty much irrelevant, not just unintelligible, but irrelevant for the recipients of the letter to the Romans. Fifthly, the Gentiles coming into Christ are intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, these are Jews in Paul's generation, his generation. Let me um, remind us of the image that Paul is using of the olive tree. There's some kind of a graft. The Gentiles are wild olive stock, and that's grafted into um, the native or the, the cultivated olive tree, which are the Jews. Some of their branches have been broken off, and that makes room for the Gentiles to come in. And then Paul challenges the Gentiles, don't be arrogant. He's already challenged the Jewish uh, Christians, don't look down on the Gentiles. But he's telling Gentiles, don't look down on the Jews, because uh, you know, you've, you've come into their tree, so to speak. So we have this idea, this image of uh, grafting. And when... Let me read verse 25 again, our our key verse. Uh, But when uh, a fullness of Gentiles have come in, then all Israel will be saved. Let's read this. I don't want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Well, what does that mean, the fullness of the Gentiles? And... What does it mean about uh, this hardening and this jealousy and, and this provocation that is going on? And this is Paul's grand plan in his generation. He's evangelized in the northeast quadrant of the Mediterranean. Others have uh, worked in the uh, southwest or will, uh, the southeast as well. We don't really hear so much about that. Uh, but um, the Northeast is Paul's special area, you know, arcing around from Israel, Syria, up to Turkey, Greece, and then on towards Italy. But the Northwest Quadrant is where he's heading, all the way out to Spain. So he has a master plan. Read about that in chapter 15. So he's, he's moving from this Northeast Quadrant to the Northwest Quadrant. So clearly, he saw his own ministry as a key part in the process of all Israel being reached. Let's read verse 14. I'll back up, 13. 
I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I make the most of my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. So what is Paul saying here? That as the Gentiles come in, the Jews realize they're missing out, and there's a kind of jealousy. Now, that is a beautiful image, but he doesn't realistically expect all Israel to be saved. His hope is that some of them will be saved, that he'll save some of them. That's in verse 14. Uh, Sixthly, number six, the Messiah did come, but he was rejected. We read about this rejection in the prophets like Zechariah, which even speak of the coming of the Messiah, uh, or John chapter one. But not only did they reject the Messiah, they rejected the covenant. We've seen this before, that uh, he he quotes the the scripture in Isaiah 59, this time, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Then 1127, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So they have been offered the covenant, but they rejected the new covenant just as they had rejected the Messiah. There's not another covenant. The new covenant is the one that, that all Christians are part of. There's not another covenant still to come. Number seven, the problem of free will. Now, Paul does talk about a hardening in part. Is he an example of this? I mean, I'm wondering. Uh, normally, if you're hardened, you're not going to change. But that's more at the individual level. God hardens Pharaoh. The Lord will harden people who refuse to believe um, who are reprobated, who are handed over, that they can't come back. But here Paul speaks of ethnic Israel, uh, remnant Jews, uh, and there's a partial hardening. That is, on the corporate level, some Jews accept it, some don't. The situation is in flux. Of course, there's a problem with the broader national view. If you think that all Israelites will be saved, then it would seem that their free will will be overridden. I mean, is it really like God to force the evidence on us so that we cannot say no? Or is there some superior piece of spiritual equipment or, uh, you know, a d- detection instrument in a Jewish person that makes him more receptive to the Messiah when the Messiah is shown to him? That makes him susceptible of a mass conversion? I don't think so. Free will is the issue. If all Israel means every citizen or everyone living in Israel or every person who's descended from Abraham, even if it's only, you know, one part in 1,024, then there's a problem there with free will. And eighthly, and this is my final point, why I doubt an impending mass conversion, is that when Jesus comes again, it's the time for judgment, Hebrews 9 says. It's not a second chance to surrender to the Lord, to surrender to Yahweh. Philippians 2 speaks of a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that doesn't say that everyone will be saved, but it'll be too late to make a choice. Everyone, even God's enemies, as that passage um, is once again quoting from the prophet Isaiah, even God's enemies bow down. It is too late, though. The second coming is a time for judgment. It's not a time of judgment for the whole world except Israel, and then they all get a chance to be saved, and they're guaranteed to be saved. Well, this is my view. Look, I'm aware that that many of you hearing this have been taught differently, or you're confused by this, or maybe it's even upsetting. So I'm anticipating some of the questions that you might have, and I've come up with eight, again, all in the notes. What about, first, 
the return to the land. Didn't Israel have to return to the land? Didn't God promise the land to Abraham in Genesis 12? Yes, he did. Yet all the land was given to Abraham's descendants, Joshua 21, 43. You say, well, yeah, but then they were driven out of the land. That's right. But in 2 Chronicles 36, they come back to the land. Well, maybe they need to come back again, you know, 1948 and everything. Well, the problem with this is that in Romans, Paul interprets the Gentiles coming to Zion in a metaphorical sense, not a geographical one. His vision, if you read all of Romans, is not that the Gentiles will go to Israel. Rather, the word goes out from Israel. So Isaiah's image, I think we have reason to take figuratively. His image in Isaiah 2 of all the nations streaming up to Zion, that is uh, Jerusalem viewed from the spiritual perspective, that that image is not literal. It's really uh, uh, in the other direction. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem. They're not required, the non-Jews, to come to Zion, physical Zion. See, Zion for us has nothing to do with physical Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that is above as Paul describes it in Galatians. Or you can look at the letter to the Hebrews. So there's no necessary return to the land, which, again, many radio preachers are expecting. What about 1948? Well, as we know, after World War II, 1945, um, after the uh, final solution, the Holocaust was, was ended, and after the dust settled, or at least a lot of the dust settled, the lobbying for a homeland for the Jewish people. And this was an effort that gathered steam at the end of the previous century, a movement called Zionism, which uh, interestingly was led mainly by secular Jews, uh, many of whom didn't believe in God or the Bible. But this movement to have a homeland for the Jews uh, gathers even more momentum after the Ottoman Empire falls, with the British mandate, this is during World War I, and even more after World War II, and eventually after uh, much lobbying of Congress and petitioning of Parliament, because this effort took place on both sides of the Atlantic. Finally, a homeland is given. The Palestinians are pushed out, and some of them have been living in the Holy Land for a thousand years. That is, they weren't exactly newcomers, but they were pushed out by the Israeli army and the land was given to the Israelis. Whether they were faithful Jews or not, they were given the land. In other words, 1948, the foundation of modern Israel, is the result of politics, not prophecy. Again, I know I'm hopelessly outnumbered, not among Christian scholarship, but among Bible-focused churches, because I think many Christian scholars would admit this quite freely. But in the Bible-focused churches, and those who often have television and radio programs, uh, there's an awful lot of emphasis on 1948 and the obligation of the Western nations, particularly the United States, to provide aid to Israel, uh, support Israel. Until quite recently, Israel was the number one recipient of U.S. foreign aid primarily to its military. Yet, there's no evidence that all this aid has disposed the Israelis uh, towards faith. In fact, um, the laws against evangelicals are quite repressive. And besides, national Israel 
if I'm right, is no longer a biblically meaningful category. God would no more have a covenant with national Israel than he has a covenant with Egypt or with uh, Ghana or Canada. And, And that's really a different discussion. Does God deal with the nations? Well, of course, God is sovereign and he deals with everyone. But does he relate to us based on nationality? See, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, church and state were one. God's people were a political commonwealth. Everyone in that commonwealth was assumed to be part of the covenant people, the assembly of Israel, the the church of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's different. True Christians are always going to be a very small minority of the world, a minority in whatever country they happen to live in. And if that's the case, just another reason not to think of Israel in national terms. And besides, as Paul discouraged us in chapter 9, verse 6, from doing that, Israel is not about physical descent. It's about spiritual ascent, can we say. So these are some questions you may have. What about the return to the land? What about 1948, which I'm saying is the result of politics, not prophecy? But what about Ezekiel 37, the third question? Doesn't Ezekiel 37, start around verse 24, doesn't it say that a second David will lead the people in the land of Israel? Isn't Ezekiel 34 to 39 referring to the distant future? Some evangelicals will admit freely that it was fulfilled. The passage was fulfilled under Ezra. That is, once the people came back from captivity, from the exile, the Babylonians and Assyrians and Babylonians. So some would admit that it was fulfilled partially then, and again at Pentecost, in a sense, Israel comes back to its, uh, to its land, but just partially. But they have a difficult time believing that there isn't more to come. Yet God's prophetic oracles are often non-literal. They'll, they'll be hyperbolic. Uh, deliberately overstated for effect. Think of all the passages about the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament. Yet we know from the history that Babylon never fell. Once the Medes and Persians came to power, there wasn't exactly a battle. They just opened the gates and let the Persian king come right in. And maybe more important, Jesus claimed to be the second David and to be the good shepherd, John chapter 10. He's already ruling. We don't need a a political Messiah to rule the world based in Jerusalem. And many um, premillennialists would say that his throne is in physical Jerusalem. Uh, I believe he reigns in heaven. And there he stays until the judgment day. He's already ruling. When he returns at the end of the time, it's not going to be a time for extension of the gospel, but for judgment. Now, here's the big question. What about full number? Doesn't the Bible say the full number of the Gentiles has to come in? I deliberately read from the New American Standard because I think it gets this right. And uh, a number of Bible versions don't get it right. Romans 11.25 speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And so, in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And you say, well, doesn't that make a difference? If there's a full number, then after Gentile baptism number... 3 million and 72, then we reach a certain point, a critical point, allowing the mass conversion of Israel. Well, that's what you would think if you translate it full number. And I'm aware that several versions translate it that way. But 
I think we have a difficulty with that. To me, that's as problematic as as agreeing with the Jehovah's Witnesses that there are 144,000 in heaven. Uh, again, that's a that's a literal, uh, not a literal, it's a figurative passage. And this, I'm referring, of course, to the image in the book of Revelation. So what does the Greek say? Thanks for asking. Pleroma. Plerao is to fulfill. Pleroma is a noun. It normally means fullness. It's not that it could never mean full number, but not normally in the Bible. This word appears in a number of places. Let me just read a couple of them right in Romans, because I think that's that's helpful. Romans 13.10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fullness or the fulfillment of the law. Not the full number. Uh, let's go to Romans 15.29. Paul says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Nothing about a full number there. I give you more examples in the notes. So we should not imagine that with the full number of Gentiles being converted, then all Israel is saved. As though non-Jews stop being one to Christ, and now it's the time for unbelieving Israel. Rather, Remember, Paul is hoping that his countrymen, his fellow Jews, will be moved to envy as they see the Gentiles coming in. And uh, it becomes increasingly obvious that this is the fulfillment of the prophets. True Zion, true, uh, the true covenant of God has become available to all the world. We're living in the Messianic times. Jesus was the Messiah. He's not coming in the future. He's already come. Not to say he's not coming in the future, but uh, in a sense, people have missed the boat. Now, another question you might have is Matthew 19. Matthew 19 speaks about the Son of Man. Um, I was just reading this the other day, and it's a question you may have, and, and I even have a little bit of a question on it. Um, I think the case I'm presenting is reasonably strong, but full disclosure is always a good thing. Remember when uh, the rich young ruler walks away and and Jesus says, uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter goes, whoa. Okay, then Jesus says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that regeneration, that restoration has the apostles on the thrones. What does that mean? Well, if Jesus is already on his throne, then the natural reading would be that the apostles are going to be in charge in God's people. That is, it won't be the corrupt temple aristocracy anymore. It won't be the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, running the show. Those who are worthy will run the show. Think of Matthew 21, 43. Um, And so the apostles would have been sitting on the thrones in a figurative sense right then, just as Jesus is on the throne. But he's on the throne right now, according to Acts chapter 2. And you can look in verse 30. The only problem I have with that is that when I read Acts 3.21, which seems to be a parallel passage, it seems to be talking about the future. 
that is our future. And I think that gives the traditional evangelical view a little bit more weight. But anyway, that's how I'd approach Matthew 19. Now, my, my sixth question is maybe unspoken, but it may be felt. So let me put it into words, if I may. Given the Holocaust and the Crusades and the pogroms and anti-Semitism, don't the Jews deserve some compensation? That is, maybe there's a psychological predisposition we have to believe that that all um, Israel defined broadly, not necessarily the way Paul's defining it, but that, that they should all have a chance to be saved because we Gentiles have treated them so badly. And that sounds fair in a way, you know, for the scales to be balanced, yet it would be a kind of a free ticket to heaven. And this has to be scripturally demonstrated. You can't just assert it or change the subject and say, well, look at the history of Israel and how they survived. That proves they're God's people. And after the horrible things that we've done, they must be saved. That's not really a, um, it may be a convincing argument, but it's not a logical argument or a biblical argument. Seventhly, aren't God's gifts and calling irrevocable? Ah, that's a great question. And I knew someone would ask it. So let's look at that section, 1119. He says that, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the gospel, these are beloved. The Jews are beloved. 1129. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, that's the Jews' disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Now the you are the Gentiles. Paul says many times in Romans, he's writing to Gentiles. It's a predominantly Gentile church. If you look at the names in chapter 16, these are not Jewish people, not most of them. They're not Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. And so the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take back what he promised, but notice he says that he will show mercy. He shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. How has Paul um, developed this idea of gifts and call? Well, if we take it in the broadest sense possible, all are shut up to disobedience so that all may be shown mercy, then all would be saved. Everyone would be saved. I think that doesn't really work. You know, back in chapter 5, uh, we have uh, Christ dying, and and uh, this is back in 5.18. You know, sin comes in the world through through Adam. And then in uh, we read in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation, to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So if you're going to take 518 at face value and, frankly, out of its context, then you would have all people becoming saved. And that's exactly what would be going on in 1125 and 26. So I just don't think that works. It's ironic that, I think anyway, that, that those who insist on salvation by faith alone will flirt with the idea that you could be saved even if you lose your faith, uh, as in once saved, always saved, or even if you never had any faith, like Romans 11. I mean, if you don't have faith, if you've not made a, a, a conscious choice and you've accepted Christ on his terms, to insist that, well, then you'll certainly get another chance, especially if you're ethnically Jewish, 
that contradicts the prophets. John the Baptist even contradicts Jesus. And an eighth and final question, don't we worship the same God? I mean, don't the Jew, aren't they saved maybe under their own covenant? Well, you know, we do worship the same God, at least presumably, yes, but that's not directly relevant. Now, if they will be saved, uh, if they faithfully observe and obey God, but that's just to say that obedient faith is necessary. I mean, you could also ask, don't we share the same scriptures? Yeah, I mean, most all of our Bible is the Old Testament. But these scriptures point to Christ, but they're not under a separate covenant. Once again, the covenant mentioned in chapter 11 is the same covenant that we're part of. Before I wrap it up, let me recap. I gave eight reasons to doubt an impending mass conversion. The definition of Israel uh, that Paul's using in chapter 9-6 the remnant doctrine, that is not the majority, but a remnant will be saved. And the true Gentile believers and the true Jewish believers together will make up God's people. Jewish history, it would be unfair. It would be terribly arbitrary to admit the final generation of Jews, but all the previous generations rejecting Christ wouldn't make it. Uh, This common view makes the chapter quite irrelevant, uh, really of no encouragement to the recipients of Romans. Surely people are wondering, what about the Jews now? And Paul tells them not only that there's a remnant, uh, but he gives himself as an example of being a member of that remnant. He says he himself is an Israelite. I mean, he's an example, but he had to repent. And there were other people like him. And and it was the job of the first century church and the apostolic period to find those people. Uh, the fullness of the Gentiles provokes jealousy so that some would be saved, not all. In other words, if you want to take 11.26 and insist all Israel will be saved, you contradict Paul 12 verses earlier. Because in 11.14, he imagines, he hopes that some of them will be saved, not all. The Messiah was rejected. We have free will. And the second coming is not a second chance to hear the gospel for anyone. So those were the eight reasons. Then we looked at eight questions that naturally rise. Uh, What about the return to the land? Fulfilled. And now it's interpreted spiritually, not physically. What about 1948? My understanding and the understanding of many I've talked to said this is the result, not of prophecy, but of politics. I have other materials and, and podcasts on this subject Uh, at the website, if you like. Doesn't the book of Ezekiel say that David will lead the people in the land of Israel? Yes, and Ezekiel uh, 34 speaks of the good shepherd coming, who is David, who is God. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So he's already come. He already leads us. And the true Israel is Israel that is above. And this is the way it's interpreted in Galatians and Hebrews and in Romans. Uh, The full number, isn't it an actual number of Jews of Gentiles who are baptized, and then all the Jews will be saved. Fullness is a much more appropriate translation. And it's important because otherwise it could give the impression that it's a, there's a certain point in time after which there'll be this mass conversion, instead of Paul simply saying that God's not going to miss anyone. All Israel is going to be saved. All the true descendants of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone will make it. And I raised a few other uh, questions as well. I hope they're helpful to you. In conclusion, the mid-first century was a time of transition between the two covenants. We no longer live in this period any more than we live in the apostolic age. God is just. 
no one is going to slip through the cracks. Yahweh can easily bring around the unlikeliest of converts. Paul considers himself a representative of the faithful in Israel. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that for a time, the Gentiles would enter the kingdom in large numbers, both because it was a new message and because they had been prepared through the diaspora, the seeding in the Mediterranean world of the message of God, the spread of the Jews throughout the civilized world. So they'd been prepared through the diaspora, and the gospel message was new. And at this critical juncture, the Israelites were called to make a decision to accept the new covenant or to harden their hearts. It was a volatile time. Think of what Joel says in Joel 2 and 3. He speaks of multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And that's my view of Romans 11. I hope that's made you think. Thank you for your attention. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.